Hi, my name is Simon Luckhurst, and this is Biological Poker, the first season of Ear Movies. This story is called The Society of Miracles. This story was inspired by something my mother said to me once, although it's also been relayed to me from other people since. To be honest, it's been informed on a couple of occasions by my own experiences too. Mum described how she felt she was becoming invisible to people. If it were true, I thought, then possibly there were things she could take advantage of. In the story though, I also wanted to understand where such feelings come from. I don't think everyone who feels invisible has had the same experiences as Leonie in the story did when she was young, but I wanted to show how the precedents might have been set. Kate Fitzpatrick is a legend of Australian film and TV. I've always loved watching her on the screen and it was a real honour to have her read The Society of Miracles. From the first sentence you feel how much control she has over the spoken word. A lifetime of performing will do that for you, I guess. This story is a bit different to some of the others in the series in that it has two distinct halves. Look for the connections though, you'll find them. And now, here's Kate. The Society of Miracles They woke up at 4am and drove through the warm morning. Leonie vowed to stay awake but inevitably didn't. She slept through the burgers her parents ate at the all-nighter in Taree. The magpies were murmuring as they pulled into the steep driveway of the beach house. Inside it smelled of mildew and the first thing her mother did was open all the doors and windows. Leonie unpacked her bags and filled her cupboard while her father unloaded the car. Her mother made bacon and eggs. They read and snoozed for a few hours. The local station played good songs. For lunch, they had ham and tomato rolls. In the afternoon, her father packed rods, reels and the tackle box, and he and Leonie drove to South Beach. Leonie remembered it from the year before. A long, wild stretch of shoreline that disappeared in the distance near what she knew was Diamond Head. When they'd visited last Christmas, she'd seen kangaroos lethargically hopping around the campsite there. She loved it. She hoped they'd go back there this time too. Her father grabbed the fishing gear, leaving Leonie's rod for her to carry, and they walked towards the surf. The smell was a rampant mixture of salt and fish and weed. Her father was already in bare feet, his thongs upright in the sand as he stood on the tide line watching the water recede. He leapt forward quickly and stuck his hand into the wet sand, pulling up a pippy. Didn't take long, did it? he said, grinning. The cigarette in his mouth smouldered as he used his knife to open the shell. Remember how we do it? She nodded. As the water rolled back, they dangled the meat in the water. They did this for two or three sets of waves. The water was silver, she thought, shining. Later, as the sun lowered, it would be gold. She saw her father grab the needle-nose pliers out of his pocket as he leaned forward, holding the pippy meat in the runoff. Saw a little head emerge from the sand. Seconds later, he held the whole worm before him. It was easily a metre long. Few more of these and we'll be good. The first worm Leonie tried to grab ducked quickly back under the sand and she pulled the head off the second. Third time lucky, love, her father said, laughing. Not too loose, not too tight, yeah? 
Last year, he'd called her the worm champion. She was successful on the next try. Half an hour later, they had a dozen worms between them. That'll do, her dad said. He lit another smoke and flicked his used match into the sea. This was the bit Leonie wasn't looking forward to, chopping up the worm and threading it on the hook. Last year, her father had done it for her. He had already told her this time he expected her to do her own. She cringed but made the cut and threaded. Ugh. It was done. She checked her reel was in the unlocked position and actually had her line in the water before her dad. Well done, Nipper, he said. She had a couple of small bites early, but he landed the first one, a brim, good size too. It flicked silver on the wet sand while he extracted the hook and then was dumped in the bucket. Come on, Lee. She reeled in and was baitless, so she added another worm. More nibbles. She flicked the rod and was rewarded by a tug on the other end of the line. Loved this bit. Nothing big, she knew, but a surprising effort to wind it in. Fun. It was a decent whiting. Nice, her father said. She smiled. Their agreement was that she'd do her worms, but he'd still do her hooks. And she watched as it was taken out and her fish joined his in the large bucket. They were standing again, lines out, side by side when he spoke. I'm moving out. The words hung like a seagull on the shore breeze. Huh? Not my idea, Mum's. The gull shrieked. He added, you know, the arguments. Leonie hated their stupid fights. Sorry, Lee. But it's not forever, is it? It's hard for you to understand, but it's probably for the best. I don't want you to go. I'm going to see you every second weekend. She didn't want him to leave. She didn't want to fish anymore either. She didn't want to be on the beach or go swimming later or visit Diamond Head. She kept standing there but was empty. She was a shadow of a 12-year-old now. It had all changed in that one sentence. was so normal. Apricot chicken. Afterwards, her father smoked from his red and white pack and drank from his cans. Her mother sipped wine from her cask and smoked from her dark blue packet. In the background, the earnestness of Bill Peach and this day tonight. No vigour like that in this house that night. Nothing like it. Quiet. At least for now. The same as most nights. Low blue smoke over the dining table and afterwards Leonie washed up. She thought her mother might say something to her while she dried. Nothing. She braced herself for another row before the movie came on, but nothing happened then either. Her parents were nice to each other. In the distance, she could hear only the sea. The single surprising thing as she kissed her father goodnight was the slightest trace of a tear, a tiny trail. In terms of the afternoon, she thought it was like the scent of a pipi to a worm a marker of something that lured his heart. Was it her, she wondered? Or had she imagined the whole thing? That night the waves seemed louder than usual. (music) 
In the morning, she dutifully ate her cereal. Her dad was buried in the Daily Mirror and her mum was out, presumably walking. She liked walking when they were here. She told her father she was going for a walk as well and headed out the back. She knew the path that threaded between their row of houses and the one that lay behind them. She crossed the road and walked a bit further along. She was nervous. It had been a year since she'd seen him. But the memory of their kiss was still strong for her. She wondered if it would be for him. It had been on her last night when a farewell hug had suddenly gone in another direction. She'd liked him. Her dad had said she'd trailed after him like a lost puppy. She didn't feel it was like that. They'd had some great chats. She'd written to him a couple of times over the year and had a card from him on her birthday. It didn't say much, but it was something. She walked past his house. There was a car in the driveway and she could hear a vacuum cleaner. She was two houses past his already. She stopped and pretended to look at the ground, then turned back. She went up his driveway and knocked. She thought she'd have to knock again because of the noise of the vacuum, but he was there before she had to. He grinned. Hey, Lee. Hi, Ross. He opened the fly screen to let her in. He was a bit taller, maybe, but didn't look to have changed that much otherwise. He didn't bother to let his mum know she was there and let her straight into his room. It was a converted garage, quite large, posters of surfing and kiss and a girl playing tennis in a short dress which she'd pulled up to show her bum. I didn't know when you'd be here. It's always been the start of the second week in January. It occurred to her then that this might be their last visit. Would she still come after her parents split? She didn't want to think about it. He sprawled on his bed in a loose singlet and his boardies. She sat in the old reclining chair. Don't you know how to write, she asked, smiling. She spent about a month working on what she'd say to him first. Not much of a letter writer. Sent you a birthday card. Thanks for remembering. He fished around under his pillow and pulled out his smokes. He opened the window and lit one. He offered her the pack. She was tempted to take one. Thought she would sometime over the summer, but not now, not in front of him. What if she coughed or had a head spin? Mikey Peterson had even spewed. She shook her head. You remember Tracy Carter, he asked. She did. The sort of chick who only had to glance at the sun to get a tan. Legs and arse and tits and a pretty face except for a gap-toothed smile. Going to ask her to go with me when she gets here? Yeah? She tried to look cool. She hadn't expected anything from him, not really, but she hadn't expected this. with Ross after this wasn't what she'd hoped for. They talked, but after a year apart, and for Leone anyway, the spectre of Tracy's imminent arrival, their conversation was stilted at best. He talked about the waves, she talked about her year at school. It was only fishing where they really connected. They both loved fishing. Her parents kicked off that night. Leone saw the signs and was amazed how they ignored them or didn't see them her mother picking at her father for ashing on the floor. He was drunk and Leonie didn't think he'd meant it, but she had to admit her mother was right. He could be really messy. 
Still, it wasn't exactly a war crime either, which her mother was making it sound like. She ducked downstairs before they really got into it and tried to read as they shouted. Little women. They stopped eventually. They always did. Her mother would go to bed and read her magazines and smoke. Her father would drink and then fall asleep in front of the telly. She took her book down to Pilot Beach in the morning and lathered herself in reef oil. She was surprised when Ross and Tracy arrived. Hey. Hey yourself. If anything, Tracy looked more gorgeous than last year. Her legs were already bronze next to Leonie's practically grey sheen. A box of meds poked out the top of her bag. Was she showing the tampons deliberately? She was a good talker, though, and Leonie liked that. They chatted about movies and TV shows and Gough Whitlam and Number 96. Ross slipped away eventually. They knew he'd be body surfing at Wash House. The talk was easy, and Leonie felt older than 12. Tracy asked Leonie what she thought of Ross. She was worried he was going to ask her to go with him. She didn't want him to. Leonie was surprised. Ross had a surfer's body, sense of humour, blonde hair. What more could you want? Tracy had met a fifth-form boy. He went to Farrah Agricultural High in Tamworth, but she loved him. She was pretty sure she loved him. They had long calls in the evening. The sun was high overhead. Children were screaming with fun, and Leonie wished it would stay like this forever. That night at Ross's, he passed them both a can of beer he'd taken from his dad. Leonie felt great on the second can. They were laughing. Ross put on Pink Floyd. She and Tracy shared a cigarette. Leonie sat on the rocker, and it felt like the room was a merry-go-round, quietly turning. Heard Ross and Tracy kissing, closed her eyes. It had been a beautiful day, and nothing was going to wreck it now. Knox arrived two days later. Gangly, she thought. Unco. Glasses that somehow were always falling off his face. Funny in his way, though. He had a good sense of humour. Young, like her. They quickly became a foursome. Ross and Tracy, Leonie and Knox. They didn't kiss, even when Tracy and Ross were pashing. But they held hands and put arms around each other, and she constantly watched him and loved it when he looked back into her eyes. Her parents didn't seem to worry where she was. She tanned by day, hung out at night. Two weeks flew. She only had a few days left until the holidays ended. She was smoking now, nicking a few from her parents in the morning, enough to get through the day. They didn't seem to notice. She still fished some afternoons with her dad. She wondered what it would be like to smoke with him. Hey, Nipper, want a Winfield? She imagined it a thousand times. Both of them standing there on the shore, ciggies in their mouths, fishing quietly. But it never happened, of course. Her dad was quieter. He was slipping away from her, already planning his separate life. She thought she should be concerned by this, but the evenings with her friends were more important. Parents would work it out. One afternoon, Ross was riding his skateboard down towards the beach. He came round the corner, and there was a family right across the road. He nearly knocked down the grandmother. When he told them about it later, they'd all laughed. 
the way he said it. The fear of the grandmother, the father's anger. But she shouldn't have been so far across the road. On Thursday night, Ross's mum drove them into Loriton to the movies. They went to see Herbie Goes Bananas, which is a pretty stupid movie. But they're only there to have fun. Other kids were louder than they were. She didn't think any of them really watched the film. Ross was pashing Tracy. His hand was high on Tracy's thigh. She didn't want to go back home, so she went for a walk down to Pilot Beach. She sat on the rock wall and listened to the sea. She looked up and saw someone approaching her. A boy older than her, though, maybe 15 or 16. He was wiping his eyes. Was he crying? Hey, she said quietly, not wanting to startle him, but also letting him know she was there. Oh, hi. He wiped his eyes again quickly this time, obviously not wanting her to notice his tears. What's up? she asked. He looked at her as if deciding. He sat next to her. You don't look happy. He sniffed. My dad works in a bank, and they're saying he took some money. He has to go to court in a couple of weeks. He thinks he's going to jail. That's bad, she said. He nodded. Mine is splitting up. Really? She realised he was the only person she'd told. Ah, they have stupid fights and Mum reckons it'll be better. Will it? She shrugged. Dunno. I'll miss him. What's going to happen after that? Will they marry other people? And what will they be like? Maybe they'll have other kids too and I'll have stepbrothers or sisters. I don't want that. Are you sure it's final? She nodded. I reckon... They're talking like it is. The fights keep happening, even on holiday. The wind blew along the beach, disturbing some gulls on the sand. You like it here? Yeah, you? He looked down the beach to the water. The waves at Pilot were tiny. They always were. Washhouse was different. It wasn't contained by the sea walls, and they could hear the surf. Parents with little kids came to Pilot. You could surf Washhouse sometimes. At least that's what Ross said. I don't know if we'll come back. Me either. Somehow they held hands. She didn't know if he moved his arm or if she moved hers, or if her hand knew his was lonely, but there they were, fingers entwined. He was a funny kid, had lots of stories or talk about Benny Hill and the goodies, and, and she laughed. They stayed holding hands for half an hour as he went on until just as surprisingly, for her anyway, they ended up kissing. She was lost, loved how it felt, had his arms around her, kissed her neck sometimes, mostly her mouth though. She thought she'd faint, actually pass out. Didn't. He pulled back eventually and checked his watch. I have to go or my dad will go mental. I'm only allowed out till 11. That was her curfew too. They held hands as they walked back. He kissed her again in front of her house, told her his phone number, made her memorise it. She was happy to. She went inside and wrote it down the first thing she did. Bloody hell, she hadn't even asked his name. She hated herself. She got up early, walked around looking for him, for a family packing to leave, a loaded car, kids standing in the driveway, maybe even looking for her. She didn't see him. 
That night she went to the phone box and dropped some 20 cent pieces in the slot and dialed. It was a disconnected number. She cried then, in the phone box. Mosquitoes and sandflies making a meal of her. Her legs were covered in red spots in the morning, but she didn't care. She tried to call him again after a day spent trying to drag the right number out of her brain. She wanted to try different combinations, a few digits either side of the one she had. But she didn't want to be embarrassed if someone answered and she had to ask, Hello, do you have a son about 16? You've just come back from Dumbogan? She didn't ring and she never saw him again. A few mornings later, she was lying on her bed listening to the transistor when there was a knock on her door. Leonie didn't bother to answer. She'd stayed at home reading since the night at the movies and knew Tracy and Ross wouldn't have missed her. Her mother answered and she was surprised by hearing her name called out. Lee, it's Tracy, doll. What was Tracy doing here? Leonie's mother led her into the room. Hey, how are you? Tracy shrugged and noticed the pile of books on the table next to Leona's bed. You read all those? Most. You're not a reader? Not much. Dolly mainly. Sometimes Cleo if Mum's not looking. Tracy was quiet. You okay? Leonie asked. I might be up the duff. Leonie sat up. What? Before she could say anything more, her mother was back. I brought you some cordial, she said. G.I. all right? And ice vovos? Lee's favourite, she said to Tracy. She put the tray down on the bed between them. Thanks, Mum, Leonie said. Her mother left the room. Actually, I like Monte Carlo, she told Tracy. Scotch fingers, Tracy said. They ate the ice vovos anyway. Are you sure you're pregnant? Leonie asked. I'm late. I've always been regular. And my tits are sore. You've been feeling sick? No, but Dolly says you don't always. What are you going to do? Can you buy me a pregnancy test? Leonie imagined herself standing at the counter of the Loriton chemist asking for a test. It would be so embarrassing. I, I don't want to ask you, but there's no one else and my mum's in that chemist all the time and they know us. Tracy looked desperate. Is it Ross's? Tracy started to cry, slow tears leaking down her nose. Leonie passed her a tissue. You must think I'm a mole. I didn't want to do it with Ross, but he can be very persuasive. I don't think you're a slut, Leonie said. What are you going to do if you're pregnant? Tracy couldn't or wouldn't answer. The tears continued to flow. Leonie really wanted to take the last ice vovo, but couldn't bring herself to grab it. Her dad ran them into Loriton after lunch. Tracy had money and handed it to Leonie as soon as her dad had gone into the pub. They walked up to the chemist and hung around the front for a while. I'm packing it, Leonie told Tracy. Please, Tracy said. Leonie looked at her and sighed. Okay, she said. She found the test easily enough. She picked one off the shelf at random and went to the counter. Stood there forever. The staff ignored her. They were preparing medicines, stacking shelves. One girl was sweeping. In the end, she pocketed the test and walked out without paying. No one noticed. Did you rip it off? Tracy asked her, sounding surprised as they walked towards the library. Leonie knew there was a toilet in there. 
Leonie nodded. She felt proud. She'd been scared. Worried when she was going to buy them, even more frightened when she walked out, but somehow it felt like the right thing to do. Leonie browsed the quiet stacks while Tracy went to the bathroom. Waited about ten minutes for her to come out again. She was smiling. I'm not, she said. Good you didn't spend that money. I'm going to ask Ross to get some Frenchies with it. Reckon he will? Reckon he's not getting any more until he does. They walked back to the car and leant against it while they waited for her father to come out. Leonie thought they might chat, but Tracy was quiet. Leonie remembered the feeling of walking out, the mixture of fear and boldness. Didn't like the fear, but liked the other. She'd hardly spoken to her parents the whole holiday. Not that they'd attempted to talk to her a whole lot either. Possibly they were afraid of her reaction to their decision. At least the fights had stopped now, if only because her father's spending most afternoons and evenings in the pub. Her dad wanted to take her to the Chinese, but she chose to go down to the beach with Ross and Tracy. They lit a fire and smoked and drank Brandovino that Tracy's mum had got for them. Gianni felt lightheaded, laughed a lot, went for a walk while Tracy and Ross pashed, maybe even more. She liked it at the end of the wash house, the waves pounding, spray, wind, the occasional gull. She smoked two cigarettes. She coughed once, but was used to them now. Eventually she walked back to the fire. Tracy and Ross were talking softly when she said goodnight. They didn't reply and she wasn't sure they even noticed she was going. Both her parents' cars were in the driveway, but the house was quiet. She knew there'd been a fight because their bedroom doors were shut. She drank some milk and then went downstairs to bed. Sometime in the morning she heard her mother's car leave. About half an hour later her dad's ute went as well. She dozed for an hour or so and then got up. A note under her door, her dad's writing. Lee, I'll miss you. I'll see you at home in a fortnight when I pick you up. I'll have found somewhere to live by then. Love, Dad. Pretty short, she thought, for that kind of note. She walked upstairs. There was another note for her, this one from her mother on the dining room table. Darling, I hope you have a nice weekend with Dad. I'll be back Monday afternoon. Have a nice time together. Sorry this has happened, Mum. Both their rooms were empty. She made herself a Nescafe and sat on the lounge. They hadn't even worked this out. They'd both taken off leaving her alone, thinking the other one was with her. She'd be alone for the weekend until her mother returned. She didn't have any money, but that was okay. There was food in the fridge. She could walk down South Beach and do some fishing, pry some oysters off the rocks down at the lake shore in front of the house. She'd be all right. Looking back later, a long time after her mother returned, as she said she would on the Monday afternoon, apologetic and even tearful when she heard what had happened, Leonie said that weekend was the best holiday of her life. Forty-two years later, Leonie considered herself mousy. Her stepbrother had joked, using an old Groucho Marx line, that she had risen from nothing to a state of complete mediocrity. He was a dentist. She supposed dentists looked down upon teachers, particularly meek ones. She just accepted that she had a quiet, content place in the world and didn't feel the need to change. So she was very surprised when eventually everything did. 
The first sign was at school when her students didn't seem to notice she'd come into the classroom one morning. They continued with their loud conversations and texting as if she wasn't there. She <clears throat> cleared her throat a couple of times, but it wasn't until she yelled at them, actually shouted, that they finally saw her. She was wearing a faded brown dress. She realised it was the same colour as the dust in the playground and the timber floor of the old classroom. No wonder they couldn't see her. She was camouflaged. The next day, she wore a green dress, the colour of old eucalyptus leaves. But it seemed that this was, if anything, even worse. She spoke up to the kids and then shouted again, but in the end, she had to slam a ruler on the desk before they turned to the front of the room, some peering as if through fog or gloom before they finally noticed her. The situation was the same in the small staff room she shared with half a dozen of her colleagues. Mr. Harris talked football with Miss Smith. He had once played in a club game and she had once dated a boy who'd played in the same club, albeit a generation later, so they had that in common. Mrs. Anderson hunched over her cryptic crossword, muttering and scrawling patterns of letters and occasionally chuckling. Miss Who played Candy Crush on her phone and Miss Katana typed furiously on her laptop, working on the novel she hoped would free her. There was also Mr. Dunlop, but he now took all the playground supervision duties. He preferred to avoid the staff room entirely since his attempts to woo Miss Smith had failed in such a lacklustre fashion. His eventual response was to give her the silent treatment. However, neither Miss Smith nor any of the other teachers had noticed. Leonie preferred to sit at her desk, sipping tea and eating Vegemite sayos. She liked her corner, where she could watch the others silently focused on their individual pursuits. The noise from the playground occasionally seeped through. The screams and calls of a hundred determined junior narcissists all clamouring for the attention she herself avoided. As the weeks went on, her descent into invisibility continued. People sat on her in the bus and pushed their trolleys into her at the supermarket. She had to wait forever to order a coffee. The young cafe folk would be gathered behind the counter chattering and scrolling through their phones and she would stand there and... <clears throat> <clears throat> louder and louder, till eventually one of them noticed her. She wondered if one day they would not see her at all. In the evening, she would return home and take off her shoes. She loved the sensation of the carpet under her bare feet after a day on the hard wooden floors. After this, she would cook dinner, enough for herself and Mr. Scannon, who lived downstairs. He was elderly and blind. Their normal evening was to sit in front of the television, with Leonie providing a running commentary of the visual elements of whatever programme they were watching. Mr Scanlon said it was a comfort having her there. He rarely left his flat. Social services did his shopping for him. Leonie cooked his dinners. Leonie was content with his company, even though he would usually fall asleep while she was there. Although she knew he wasn't conscious, She'd keep whispering a running commentary of My Kitchen Rules or The Shark Tank or The Bachelor or whatever was on. There was no logic to what they watched and they no longer held discussions to decide. Leonie would just channel flick until, with unspoken agreement, she would land on something they both knew was right. Occasionally it would be a nature documentary. Unfortunately, like so many of the animals they described, it seemed these programmes themselves were becoming rare and were perhaps already on the endangered species list. Leonie believed that her commentaries of majestic wildebeest stampeding across the veldt, of orcas stalking hapless seals or penguins huddled stoically together for mutual warmth on a frozen landscape were almost artistic in their capacity to impart visual meaning. 
She hoped that Mr. Scanlon would see her words as pictures in his dreams. One morning, on her short walk to work, she was knocked down by a skateboarder. She'd seen the youth approaching as he flew down the footpath towards her. She'd stepped out of his way, but he swerved and ended up slamming right into her. She hit the ground hard and felt a sharp pain in her elbow. The kid had picked himself up and started swearing at her. He blamed her for what had happened and said she'd jumped out in front of him. She broke down in tears. Her olive dress was torn in two places. She had a graze along her forearm and her elbow was throbbing in pain. Abruptly, there was another woman standing alongside her and they both watched the youth skate off. The woman who lived in the house Leonie had fallen in front of took her inside. She made Leonie a cup of tea and they sat there quietly sipping their drinks. I guess he just didn't see me, Leonie explained. The woman nodded. I expect that's it. I was in the bank the other day and someone pushed right in front of me. She said she hadn't noticed I was there. Leonie nodded and told the woman about the times in the classroom the children hadn't seen her. The older I get, the more it happens, the woman said. They sipped their drinks and Leonie occasionally glanced towards the lace curtains that gave the world outside a soft focus. The woman found a bandage for Leonie's throbbing elbow and Leonie told her that she appreciated her kindness. The injury and the nature of the accident caused Leonie to become an object of concern and interest at school, and she found her class was briefly more attentive. The following day, she bought a new bandage to give to the woman to replace the one she'd been given. Despite looking for over an hour, however, she couldn't find her house. It was on the same route she took to school every day, but even though she knew its approximate location, it was as if it had vanished entirely. The same skater who had knocked her over rolled past her loudly again, but this time he managed to avoid her. Perhaps the bandage, quite noticeable, was enough warning for him. She considered wrapping herself entirely in bandages, like an Egyptian mummy. Maybe more people would notice her then. But she realised that despite the occasional inconveniences, she didn't want to be noticed. A week later, her arm was still sore and she went to the doctor. She waited in front of a young medical receptionist who stared intently at her computer screen, made several calls confirming appointments and checked Facebook on her phone at least twice before acknowledging Leonie's presence. I didn't notice you. Leonie didn't know what to say. Eventually she was led into the consulting room of Dr Khan, whom she'd seen twice before over the years. Yes, she said in her gruff way, looking at Leonie over the top of her glasses. Leonie explained about the skateboarder in her arm and the doctor inspected it. Some bruising and grazing, but superficial, I think. We can send you for an x-ray if you like, but I don't think it's necessary. Leonie shook her head. I really only came just to check. She stood to leave, but Dr. Khan motioned her to sit down. The other thing, she said. Other thing? Leonie asked. I thought that's why you were here. What other thing? You know, the doctor said. The fact that you're... Well, you're a bit translucent. Leonie looked back at the doctor and sat down again. You can see that, Dr. Khan nodded. Or rather, she told Leonie, it's what I can't see. Look at this. She held up her hand behind Leonie's back. What is it, Leonie asked. I can see my fingers, the doctor told her. How long has this been happening? Leonie shook her head up. I'm not sure. Some days are worse than others. Do you know what's causing it? The doctor stared at her, not speaking. Then she turned to her computer and Googled for a while. Nothing confirmed, but lots of sightings. She paused. 
That's probably the wrong word, isn't it? Is there anything I can do about it? I suggest brighter clothing for a start. High vis when you're outside if you want to avoid more accidents. But in the long term, is it going to get better or will I fade away entirely? The doctor stared at her, or rather at the place she thought Leone was. I can't say, she said. I'm going to refer you to a colleague. She likes this sort of thing. She'll probably want to write a study. You could become famous as the first documented case. Leone looked back at the doctor and then out the window. I'll think about it. She didn't tell Mr. Scanlon about her worsening condition. She didn't want to worry him and spoil their evening. It was nice sharing their meal and watching TV together. She chose an old movie set near the ocean. It wasn't a nature documentary, but she liked seeing the beach like it used to be. And she described to Mr. Scanlon the lack of traffic, the fashions and the hairstyles. Not a phone, facial piercing or tattoo in the entire movie, she told him. She was rewarded with a small snore. The next day, she vanished entirely. She showered as normal, but when she cleaned her teeth and looked in the mirror, she couldn't see herself at all. She put a hand to her face, but had to touch herself to make sure she was there. She was completely invisible. She dressed, but her clothes disappeared the moment she put them on. She called into work. You won't see me in there today, she told Carol, the admin assistant. In fact, I can't see myself coming in for the rest of the week. I hope you get better, Carol told her. The first thing Leonie did was go to the hardware store. She wandered the aisles without the staff noticing her. In that way, it felt no different than any other time she'd shopped there. She found a length of good tie wire and breezed out the door without paying. It was very liberating. She tied one end of the wire to the telegraph pole and held tightly to the other. At the usual time, she heard the skateboarder coming down the footpath. When he grew near, she jerked the wire taut. It was at ankle height and worked a treat. Not only did the boy get thrown right onto the pavement, did she hear a wristbone break? But his board went clattering onto the road where it was run over by a bus. She went to school and stood behind the students who tormented her the most and slapped them soundly on the back of their heads. That evening, she sat with Mr. Scanlon, and everything was exactly the same as usual. They ate, he snoozed, she whispered. She made many new discoveries in the following days. She took money from the bank without anyone seeing. She'd just help herself to the cash drawer of the most distracted teller. The young ones, with immaculate nails and thick eyebrows and collagen-filled lips were her favourite targets. They'd be engrossed on their phones as she quietly removed stacks of notes and placed them in her bag. She soon realised, however, that she had little need for money. She helped herself to food from good restaurants, boarded luxury yachts to sail with the millionaires, walked into cinemas without paying and generally helped herself to life. Dr Khan wrote her a medical certificate and she wasn't seen at school ever again. Although she was totally invisible, she felt better than she had for years. 
She didn't have to deal with unruly students or tedious lessons. She still had her evenings with Mr. Scanlon and was free to experience the entire city. Sometimes she went to hospitals and walked into surgery to watch operations. Fascinating. She went into animal enclosures at the zoo and got up close and personal with all kinds of creatures. Amazing. She toured the inside of a jail. Unbelievable. She stalked several celebrities and spent the day with them. She even watched Brad Pitt take a shower in his hotel suite one afternoon. Sensational. She didn't feel it was particularly sensational in terms of what she saw. Just the context of a nondescript schoolteacher sharing a bathroom with one of the world's major film stars. And then, one afternoon, she found out she wasn't alone in her invisibility. She'd taken to attending matinees of stage shows by walking in and occupying an empty seat. The lights had gone down and she was happily waiting for the show to begin when someone sat on her. They immediately jumped up. The strange thing was, Leonie hadn't seen them. Whoever it was must have moved away because she felt nothing else. At the end of interval, she spotted three other empty seats. She walked up to them one by one and gingerly felt around in the seemingly empty spaces. Sure enough, in the second one she tried, she touched the unmistakable form of a human, someone who instantly shied away from her hand. Shh, she whispered. Don't say anything. I'm invisible too. The show finished. The lights came up. Leonie stayed close to the chair, making sure to keep clear of the patrons leaving the theatre. When they were alone, she began to speak again. What's your name? Douglas. I'm Leonie. How long have you been invisible? Five years. I was a bank clerk, but I was made redundant. I had enough savings to live on, and there's only me and Mum. Then this happened. Is your mother still alive? Oh, yes. What does she think about you being invisible? She hasn't noticed, to be honest. She's very active. She has lunches, bowls club, card nights. She's on several committees. She talks to me, when she talks to me at all, the same as she always has. He only told Douglas about Mr. Scanlon and how he didn't know she'd changed either. She and Douglas took to spending their days together. He was as inquisitive as she was. She led him to the zoo and the jail, and he took her to Parliament offices where they sat with the highest in the land. Sometimes, as they listened to the Prime Minister's intimate conversations with his lovers or watched High Court judges enjoying sadomasochistic excesses or sneaking off to their bathrooms for another pipe of ice, he would reach for her. She would hold his invisible hand so tightly. They watched the worst excesses humanity had to offer, but then realised that amongst the evils some good was still being done. They saw cancer patients struggling under the weight of unfair suffering, being supported by uncomplaining partners. They saw parents living miserable lives so their children would thrive. They saw activists struggling against overwhelming odds to support just and honourable causes. That's when they formed the Society of Miracles. It was Douglas's idea to start doing good in the small ways they could to ease suffering. At first they provided money. That was easy. Leonie stopped taking cash from distracted bank tellers after Douglas pointed out to her they were supposed to balance their takings at the end of the day. Instead, they targeted politicians, drug barons, real estate tycoons, criminals, eastern suburbs cafe owners and other exploiters. They took cash and redistributed it to the needy. 
They had to be careful how they did this because they didn't want to be seen. So they'd arrange for bundles of notes to appear on the pavement outside poverty-stricken people's houses. They dropped 500 here, 1,000 there, and brought great comfort to people struggling to find their next meal. They worked in other ways too. They'd wait outside pubs late at night and hide car keys from drunks. It was a miracle I made at home last night. They'd intervene in domestic arguments. It was a miracle my blade deflected and I didn't stab him or I'd be in jail right now. Sometimes they worked with the sick. Douglas would administer extra morphine to the terminally suffering to help them on their way. She was in so much pain. It was a miracle she died so peacefully. Once they heard about a siege on the news, a small farmhouse a couple of hours out of town. Douglas, in one of his proudest moments, slipped some sleeping pills into the hostage-taker's drink. The miracle of Milton, where a mother and her three children lived to see another morning, was talked about for weeks. Sometimes they brought love where there wasn't love. It was a miracle we started talking. The wind blew my hat straight to him. Tricking people into changing their lives for the better drew them closer together. Emboldened by their actions, they took a picnic on the top of the harbour bridge one night. Douglas bought a small basket of sandwiches and some ginger beer, they ate leisurely in the warm evening, watching the lights below them. Leonie wondered if she was in love. She seemed so happy all the time, blissful. What do you feel, she asked Douglas. Warm, content, amazing, he replied, leaning back against her. Me too, Leonie told him, putting her arms around him. The wind whipped the flag above them and they smiled. They'd swapped it for an Aboriginal one so that Sydney would see a political statement in the morning and activists could be blamed on breakfast TV for attempting to raise consciousness in a harmless way. They sat for a long time while they listened to the music the night made. It was the cacophony of life below them that somehow became a symphony when they heard it from so far above. What's happened to us? Leonie asked. They often spoke in whispers these days. My theory is we're evolving. Douglas said. I think we're the next stage of life. Spiritual beings that have somehow blended with light. Light is the source of everything, she replied. All our atoms were once part of stars. I expect that's it, he said. It's just a natural progression. He stood and took her hand. Would you waltz with me? Yes, please. They waltzed to the sound of the wind with the percussion of traffic and distant metro station construction. He led her right off the side of the bridge, but neither was surprised when they floated like dandelion seeds above the tall buildings. She kept her hands on his waist. Although she couldn't see his face, she could hear him smiling. They flew to Douglas's front door. They were holding hands, and her heart was floating as lightly as her body. Do you feel what I feel, she whispered. Yes, he said. Later that night, he rang her. He was so faint she could hardly hear him. Mum's dead, he told her simply. He cried. She cried with him. Do you want me to come round and see you, she asked. You can't, he answered. She had to strain to hear his whisper. Will I see you tomorrow? All she could hear from the other end of the phone was the wind. Still a melody, whistling in the night.
She went round to his house in the morning, but she couldn't see him anywhere. Somehow the warmth of the previous night was still in her heart. Even with him missing, she knew he was still there. She wondered if he'd become an angel floating above her, here and there and everywhere at once. She was surprised that her bliss lingered. If anything, it grew. It increased every day. One morning, she saw a small sheet of paper caught on the edge of a suburban willy-willy in a plain tree-lined street. The dry autumn leaves were a dancing frock. Amidst them, this tiny shred of white that was so small, she wondered how she'd even noticed it. It was rejected by the dancing wind and then fluttered, a feather without a wing, down, down and down, onto her hand. Thin Bible paper. 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, verse 8, circled in red felt tip. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things that are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. She looked at the molecule of paper. A miracle, she thought. She went back home, and that night fed Mr. Scanlon as usual. As she sat there describing a documentary on the Galapagos Islands, she felt a nearly overwhelming sense of euphoria. She narrated the images from the television, but Mr. Scanlon complained he found her difficult to hear. Was his hearing failing? He died two weeks later. After that, Leonie was never heard of again. That was Kate Fitzpatrick reading The Society of Miracles. Please like Ear Movies or rate it or whatever your podcast platform has set up to say you enjoyed it, or even just tell your friends. And come back for more of Biological Poker, Season 1 of Ear Movies. I'm Simon Luckhurst. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.